Morning. Good morning. Wow, I like that. Good morning. Good morning. I'm kind of excited there. I told a story once. I was in Jamaica preaching, and it's a different culture from my rather reserved Anglo-Saxon culture. And I got up and said, good morning, and suddenly there was drums flying and piano keys. I loved it until they stopped, and I thought I said something wrong, but it appears there's a certain amount of time you do that. But it is a good morning. It's a beautiful morning out there. Last week, for me, was fun. And I thank Rebecca for it. I actually said, can you do that more often? I don't have to do any preparation. You come up with the questions. I'll just sit there and answer them. Just wing it. It's not really what they paid me to do, but I'm okay with that. Hopefully you learned a little about me and a little bit about what transition is going to look like. I know some of it's vague. And I know that some of us are going to be thinking, what exactly are the steps? And as honest as I was last, I'll be honest again, we don't know. We know where we want to go. But what we discover in the middle of things will help direct how that path winds. But the one thing I don't feel I communicated well, I'm not even sure I communicated at all, was the idea of dealing with the past. Often I get told over and over again in churches, we're new creations, the past and the past, just forget it. I hear terms like forgive and forget. That's what God does. Sadly, that's not the exact translation. The translation is, remembereth no more, or looks upon no more. If God was forgetful, God would have damage. He would be imperfect. For God to forget is to basically have Alzheimer's or dementia. God does not forget. But through the blood of Jesus Christ, he looks at us as new creations. So if anybody's pushed you to forget your past, that's not a good choice. It's important in transition that we address our past and look at it through a new lens, the lens of forgiveness, the lens of repentance, the lens of understanding that God can teach us. We do not want to be controlled by our past, but we do not want to lose what we've learned. I often say, if you forgot that a stove is hot after putting your hand on it, you'll do it every time. We learn from our past. Transition is all about addressing the past so we can tell how we got where we are. And then once we address it in the present, we can move on to the future. An unaddressed past is a limited future. Today's sermon is going to be a totally different style. It's not my normal style, so if you don't like it, don't worry. I won't use this style probably ever again. It's much more of a storytelling style. It's going to be a little longer than normal, so, you know, if you really want to run out, I'd do it now. (laughs) But I'm hoping it'll help you understand transition from my point of view, addressing the past. How important it is that we deal with the past, because the past will always exist. It's how we view it that changes where we go in the future. This morning, I'm going to tell you a story, a true story. But first, I want to start out with a metaphor for you, a building metaphor. Now, for those who know how buildings are made, we know that there is what's called the footings. That's that cement thing they pour, not the pad you stand on your basement, but your foundation actually sits on top of the footings, or it's tied into rocks and bolted into it. That's what everything is supported by the footings. And I believe we can use that metaphor and say, God is our footings. Creation is supported by God. If God did not create it, it would not exist. If God did not sustain it, And at the time of Noah, he was thinking about not sustaining it. It would not exist. So God is our footings. God is perfect. When God laid out the plans for the earth, he said, it is good. And we know in Genesis, 
after he created man and looked at creation and said, it is very good. God did a perfect job. God does not make mistakes when he creates. The Bible goes further into that process. The only thing that God created that God actually talks through his word about in its further creation or its procreation is human beings. We don't hear anything else. We hear at the very beginning in Genesis that man was created from dust and woman from the rib of a man. So God goes into great detail about our creation. Doesn't talk much about the animals other than we basically named them and he spoke them into existence. And later on, God says verses that we read last week through the psalmist. Verses that say that God is involved in the reproduction of his creation. Psalm 139, 50, or 13 through 15. I think for most people, this is a favorite set of verses. It says that God is there. God is the very footings of who we are. Verse 13 says, For you created my innermost being. You knit me together in my mother's womb. I praise you because I'm fearfully and wonderfully made. Your works are wonderful, I know full well. My frame was not hidden from you when I was made in the secret place, when I was woven together in the depths of the earth. Wow. I love those verses. But it leads to the question I asked in the title of this or the subtitle of this sermon. If we are fearfully and wonderfully made, if we are woven together, if we are knitted together so perfectly, why do we come unraveled? If God starts with perfection, what happens that causes us to fall apart? Well, I'd like to suggest that we go on with this building metaphor. If God is the footings, when that foundation is laid, the potential of little cracks is there. We enter a dirty, sinful world, and those little building blocks of our foundation get chips and cracks. The pressure of life affects us. And suddenly what's sitting on perfection is no longer perfect. Think of the pressures of life. Think of them like the earth pushing in on a foundation. Think of the sin around us like a sledgehammer breaking the blocks of our foundation. What was fearfully and wonderfully made is being attacked by the evil one. And we can become unraveled. That is our past. Our past is everything that's happened to us, both good and bad, and it lays the foundation of who we are. I know we like to say nature versus nurture, but I think a lot of it, I think we'd all agree, is nurture, is experience. Those broken blocks come from those things that happen to us in life that hurt. And when we look at life through the lens of a broken foundation, we look at life as broken people. And as a church, if we are broken in any way, it doesn't matter how much, if there's a little crack, there's a potential for another crack. If you've ever seen a foundation that's had water get in through a crack and then expand when it freezes, it just begins to break apart. One crack can lead to the other. It is so important that we deal with our past so those cracks are repaired or we become someone that God never intended us to be. It is a world that is sinful. We sin, others sin, and it affects us. Today I want to talk about how your past speaks to your present and the fact that if we don't let God deal with it, our present becomes locked into our past and we act according to what has been done to us and what we've done. I don't know about the rest of you. I don't, have you ever been to a high school reunion? 
I got to go to mine. Now, mine was early because it was actually the anniversary of the school itself. And I went to the high school reunion. I realized something. When I was in high school, I was thin up here, or thick up here and thin down here. I went back to reunion. I had become very thin up here and very thick down here. Life changes you. I think when we all left the reunion, you could hear the sigh as people let their stomachs back out. We all wanted to look young, and none of us were young. But reunions put you in connection with people you haven't seen in a long time. They put you in connection with your past. At my high school reunion, I got reintroduced to a, an old friend. I say friend very loosely, not someone I liked very much. But when you get older, you get time, you talk, right? You're not so busy chasing girls around. You're not so busy doing whatever it is you did in high school, playing sports, showing off, although I still have my stomach sucked in. You talk about stuff. And this person shared their life journey with me, and it proves to me that the past often dominates the present. And who we become because of our past needs to be addressed. This individual was adopted into a Christian home. That sounds great, right? Christian, adopted, a wanted child. He said his parents constantly told him, we chose you. We wanted you. We desired to have children, but we couldn't. But finally, we got a child. But I'm going to suggest to you there's already crack in that. When I had my kids, they told us, you know, sing to the baby in the womb. Talk to the baby. They tell the mothers, try and stay positive. The baby senses the emotion of the parent. If that is true, and we believe that to be true, then it's highly possible that a baby inside of a mother who doesn't want that baby senses rejection before that baby's even born. That baby that was woven together now experiences the sin of the world. He said the other thing for him that was really bothersome. His parents said they wanted to have a child so bad, but they couldn't. In his mind, that was, I'm second best. If they could have had children, they would not have adopted me. See, you've already got a twisted little bit of crack in the foundation, in a loving family, and it's already damaged. A child feels unwanted from the point they're born. There is suggestion that children who are adopted and don't know they're adopted still feel abandoned. And science seems to suggest that it is the unwanted pregnancy, the sense that I'm not wanted that gets through. It's not verbalized, but somehow those emotions go through. So for this person, as they explain their story, you're thinking, wow, that's not a good start. At minus age, not even born yet, there's already an issue. It was a loving family that said, I love you, that loved each other and were very close. But there was always that nagging crack that seemed to open. He describes his family as leave it to beaver. Now, I've used this sermon before and said that term, and I think every time people get younger, they just look at me more and more funny. I don't know what the optimum family is, but I know it's not married with children, which moves us up. <laughs> Am I getting close enough? Are people understanding? It was a black and white TV show where dad comes home from work, dinner's on the table, mom doesn't work, mom just cleans the home. That is work, but doesn't work at an official job. The kids worked everything out in half an hour, and everything was wonderful. He said his dad coached his, his softball team. They went to youth group. They went to church. It was a Christian family. They did stuff that people did. And it looked perfect. His line to me was this. There was a lot of hidden problems. You've got to remember in the late 60s, early 70s was the, the height of free love, drugs, rock and roll. 
And that was a time when a lot of Christians were teaching other Christians that you need to get that evil out of your child. Spare the rod, spoil the child. The problem was it had become a time where there was either very loose or a very tight situation. He said there was no room for wrong. It was always punishment. And punishment wasn't a stern talking. He said his dad had what he called the rod of correction. His description is a hardwood piece finished with a nice finish on it, thin and perfect for his dad's hands. Which the way he described, well, I have little hands, probably twice the size of mine. And every time he did something wrong, there was no explanation. There's no way saying I didn't know you would learn not to do it again. Now think of it, you've got a child who thinks he's not wanted. You have a child who thinks that he's second best, and now a child that can't do anything right. You're cracking another piece of the foundation. He told me he didn't blame his parents. His mother, or his father's mother was an alcoholic. His father didn't talk about his father at all. They ran away from home. Chances are he was just trying to do the right thing, but it wasn't the right thing because spanking your child every time they do something wrong, no matter how minor, is never going to be the right thing. He said he felt unwanted, undesired, unloved, and craved male attention. I don't know if you know where I'm going with this, but craving male attention is a dangerous thing for a young boy. Most people around saw him as a normal kid. He said he took piano lessons, sang in the church choir, went to youth group, had fun, but he said he was paralyzed with fear and no one knew that because he was a nice kid. Well, why was he a nice kid? Because he didn't want to get in trouble. He wasn't a nice kid. He was a kid who learned how to be a great actor. Do it right. Do the right things. Say the right things. Avoid punishment. But think about that. You're never yourself in your life. You're never good enough. What is going to happen to you? You're going to live a life with buried anger and resentment and hurt. He said it all caught up to him one day when two things happened. Both of which would have been punished with more than one spanking and it would not have been with pants on. The first one was he went into a forest. Now, in our area, we had this forest that everybody knew someone whose aunt or uncle had a child that knew someone that an old man flashed in the forest. No one knew anybody that it happened to, but you know wives' tales. Everyone's told to stay away from the forest because bad things happen in the forest. So he was forbidden like most of us were. He cut through the forest and got caught once and paid the penalty. Well, on this day, a few years later, he cut through, or he was around the forest again, and a teenage boy invited him into the forest. Do you know where this is going? A young boy craves male attention. He goes to the forest, and there is a, a teenage boy and a teenage girl, and he is asked and forced to do sex acts. What a change. Now you found someone who wants to spend time with you who isn't going to hurt you, or at least not the way your parents do, but now it's sex involved. You've broken another piece of the foundation. You've attached sex to love. You've attached physical contact to love. He said that day he didn't realize it, but he was forever changed. But the worst part is who do you tell? What is awaiting you at home? A whipping? Where do you get help? You keep it quiet. You say nothing. You don't tell anybody. And that breaks another block. See, we're starting to crumble here because no one is getting any help. No one's being honest. And this person's getting fuller and fuller of rage and anger, not knowing what to do. And fear. Putting on a show is tough. 
Putting on a show every day of your life is much tougher. He was changed. He said, by the time he got to grade eight, now grade eight, I don't know how much you remember. I remember grade six, for me, girls were cute. You had a crush. By grade eight, you wanted to impress girls. It wasn't they had cooties and you giggled. You wanted to impress them. He said, in grade eight gym class, they had girls on one side. It was probably a bigger gym than this, but it was like separated in half. I'm trying to figure this out. Girls were on one side, guys were on the other. So they didn't have separate classes. And suddenly he felt dizzy. He tried to get help, and he doesn't remember a thing. In front of the entire girls' gym class, the boys' gym class too, but the girls were more important at that point, he had a grand mal seizure that lasted seven, eight minutes. So suddenly that kid is now seizure salad. That kid's the joke. That kid's worth even less. That kid is embarrassed and made fun of in school. They found scar tissue on his brain, and he was being medicated. It wasn't working. He said, what do guys do? They hang out and they play sports. He couldn't play sports because he got dizzy every time he moved. Again, you're not worth anything. You don't play sports with the rest of the guys. Every little thing is chiseling away at a foundation that's already weak and crumbling. He said he felt unwanted, unloved, that no one cared. He felt no one understood until camp. He said he went to camp and he got the chance to do the campfire devotion. And that's a pretty big thing for a, a young kid at this point that's in his young teens. And he did a devotion, he said he remembers, on problems. That God will be with you through your problems. God will lead you through your problems if you just give them to God. He said when he got done, he realized that the one with the problems who needed to go to God was himself. And went off and spent some time alone. And a counselor came up and started talking to him. And he shared with the counselor that life was a mess. The counselor listened. The counselor cared. The counselor, as an adult male, listened to what he had to say and to his problems. But here we go again. What better opportunity to groom a young person to do things they don't want to do than find a weak individual who's hurting and listen to their problems? So he hung out. Questions were asked that were inappropriate. Over time, questions about sexual things were asked. How far will you go? What will you do? Until the invitation was made. He said that they went to a youth rally or convention, and they were built in the same house. It was prearranged in the same room with one bed. And he said things happened. He said the only thing that changed was he was so nervous, not as much happened as was supposed to happen. And he said, again, we've attached love, sex, and acceptance all together as one thing. And the need to be needed is now attached to sexual interaction. It's attached to other people's approval. He said, the toughest part was that that person who molested him was killed months later. And he felt that he had not made that person happy and didn't get the chance to make them happy. Think about how perverted that thought is. How off the mark, felt guilty that he never got a chance to do something he shouldn't have been doing in the first place. That means he was so twisted now that the death of the person who had perpetrated against him this horrible act actually made him upset because he couldn't please that person anymore. The past speaks to the lens we look at the present through. 
The past damage to who we are forms our personalities and changes us. And unaddressed, it just keeps growing. He said high school got worse. High school I'm talking about there. No one knew from the outside. Most people who saw him didn't know. But being sick didn't help. Lots of meds. No concentration. Not a lot of friends because you can't figure out what they're saying. He said, then they gave him medication, blood thinners. And back then, that's all that we had. I remember, you got aspirin or Tylenol. That was all you got. There was none of these fancy things we have now. And they gave him so much aspirin, he blew his nose one day. And he said it was like his brains were coming out his nose and it wouldn't stop. That is mortifying to someone who's in their teenage years and, again, interested in girls, interested in being approved of, and now doesn't know when their nose is going to explode. They changed his medication. He said, at school one day, he was hurting so much, he slipped out and took some more painkillers and some more painkillers. And 13 painkillers later, he was just hoping he would die. It was suicide time, but not the first time. He said that when he was younger, at about nine years old, he went into the basement of his family's home after being spanked and yelled at, grabbed a carving knife that was sitting there that his father used to cut string with and jammed it into his chest. What saved his life was he was so skinny that it actually didn't have enough fat to burst through the skin and it hit a rib. He says to this day, he can still feel the spot that knife hit. And it left a bruise that you would not believe, he said, but no cut. So twice he's attempted suicide. He said the only thought that went through his head is, I can't even kill myself right. Do you see the perversion of the past speaking into the present and in the future? This person is worthless in their own mind, and now they can't kill themselves properly. That doesn't sound normal to me, but to him it did. Again, we must understand the past speaks to us, but it wasn't just that. It was self-harm. When I was a youth pastor, self-harm was the in thing to talk about. To the point where I had girls coming to me and telling me they were cutting and later admitting they weren't. They just wanted the attention. We couldn't tell who was actually self-harming. It was popular to say you were self-harming. And ones who needed the attention and the help, we didn't know who they were. But he did a different type of self-harming. I didn't realize that this was a type of self-harming. I mean, it makes sense, but because cutting was the in thing to talk about, he would punch himself. He said, become angry and frustrated. He'd pound his knees or his upper thighs until either his hands gave out or his legs gave out. Why? Because he got to inflict the pain on his terms, and it ended when he chose. The past is now controlling the present to the point of self-harm and suicide. A weak foundation is crumbling. But if you don't address the past, it just keeps going. It doesn't stop. Drinking. Inappropriate friends, inappropriate interactions, anything to forget, anything to feel valued, anything to feel better. He said, and two weeks after his 18th birthday, he went on a school trip and drank way too much. Was sent home for being involved in something he shouldn't have. And after a trip to the police station where the police said, it's not worth charging you, we really can't make the charges stick, but you're lucky. His dad took him home and said, if you do anything like that again, I won't bail you out. Now, I want you to hear that because as a parent, I would say that to my kids at some point. Enough is enough. But now hear it through his ears. You're not worth bailing out. You see the difference? The past speaks different things. If I said that to my kids that, you know, you're old enough, deal with your own issues, 
That's different. But when you say it to that guy, you're saying, I don't love you. I don't want you. I don't need you. I'm done with you. Again, broken foundation blocks affect how we view life. He returned to high school the next uh, year, had to get special permission. He said he became more promiscuous. Now, back when I was growing up, the biggest fear was STI, as they call them now, in pregnancy. So that was one reason not to be promiscuous. The other one was, hey, if you didn't think you were good looking enough and you weren't bold enough, nothing happened. He said his promiscuity was based on the fact that he couldn't really find people to be promiscuous with or he doesn't know what would have happened to him, how many kids he'd have running around, how many encounters would be inappropriate. He said he knew he wasn't gay, but he wasn't even sure where he would interact with people. He just wanted to be loved, and sex and love were the same thing. He went to a school dance looking for drugs, to buy drugs. School dances are a great place to buy drugs. Now, in our school, we had a quad. So our school is a square, and we had an open-air area. And he went out to buy drugs there, thinking someone would be out there, and there was no one there selling drugs. We said the neatest thing happened. And I think this is, put on your Hollywood romantic, you know, Hallmark Channel thing right here. He said he's standing there, there's a girl he knows beside him, and his best friend beside her. He steps on her toe, she grabs him, looks in his eyes, and they start kissing. I didn't think that was humanly possible outside of, you know, the music in the background, switch to this camera, that camera. He said, I don't believe that's the way it should be done, but this was like the movies. He said the first thing he told her was, I'm never getting married, but I will date you. Obviously, she had a little bit of a spell over him because he was engaged four months later and married two years later. Problem is, you bring someone into your life you want to impress, you act impressive or whatever the appropriate is. She didn't like the drinking, didn't like the drugs, so he put them aside or didn't do them in front of her. But you still have a broken foundation. And life looks wonderful until it doesn't look wonderful because the past comes in and attacks and it takes over how you view things. He said he often felt his wife would leave him because he wasn't worth it. He didn't understand why she was there. Maybe she was taking pity on this poor guy. He was convinced that his love was based on a woman taking pity on him. You can't fix a foundation that's cracked with a coat of paint. You can make it look better, but underneath is a problem. And he said it's gonna affect his marriage eventually. So he didn't drink, he didn't do drugs, he found a new drug work. He said he could go to work and people loved him. He said he took a retail store that was failing, turned it around, upped their profit by 10% and made the store actually profitable. He did it by working every day and not hiring employees. So now he feels good at work, but he's not home with his wife until that came crashing down. When the company failed, even with a successful store, there was no jobs left, and he was done. He said he came home, and he looked at a picture of his wife on the fridge as he came in the door and said, I don't even know that woman, and I don't know my own kids. And then he started doubting that she was even faithful to him. How could she be? He was never there, and he wasn't worth it. Again, the past pours into the present. He keeps hearing, you're not worth it. He was convinced she was cheating on him. He was the one cheating with the job. The job had become his mistress. And they tried to fix it. But you've got an angry person who believes he's not wanted and not loved, trying to fix a relationship by pushing someone to show love. How do we show love? Well, there's only one way in his world. And it's humanly not possible to have sex that much, to feel loved every moment of every day. So now they're fighting. 
Now his marriage is falling apart. Now it's actually coming true. He doesn't believe he's wanted, but he's actually creating an environment in which he's not wanted. So things are falling apart. He said he became even more sick. He'd already been sick. They tried other drugs. And this is a scary thought. I don't know if you know people that carry EpiPens, but he said he would suddenly swell up in his body and his top lip would touch the top of his nose. It would be so huge. And he'd drive himself to the hospital because an EpiPen wasn't worth anything and they'd inject him with adrenaline, large quantities, and that would save him and he'd be back a week later. So the hospital finally said to him, enough, we're done. It's going to kill you. We can't keep shooting adrenaline into your body. But think about this. You want to be attractive. You want to be loved. Everything's about the way you look. And you're showing up to your wife with swollen hives, a body, a face that's not recognizable. And again, he felt unwanted and unloved. The only solution was the use of anabolic steroids. Not prednisone, not that type of steroid, the muscle building type. If you know anything about steroids, steroids come with something else called roid rage. Take an angry, angry person, pump them full of steroids, and see what happens. He said he yelled at his wife every single day. He got so angry one time that self-harm was no longer buried, and he did it right in front of her, smashing his head into the wall. He said he thought he was just going to push in the drywall, but he hit a stud, and that made him more angry because it hurt. So he smashed his head until he was semi-conscious on the floor. There is anger that comes back from the beginning of life, and now he's a married man with kids, and it's still there and won't go away. The unaddressed past, the crumbling foundation is still there, and now everything he does is affecting it. He said it got worse. One day, he got angry enough, and he hit his wife. Roided up, angry. It's something he'd never even contemplated. He said, the only redeeming quality, if you can call it that, was, he said, I was on my way down to hit her, and I realized this was wrong, and opened my hand and slowed down. For her, she doesn't know that, so there's this fear of being hit again. But for him, it was all that saved it, because that was going to be a closed fist. He didn't just do it once, he did it twice. Same thing. Slowed up at the end, but he's roided up. He's in a rage. So now he's going to try drinking again. He'd get drunk in front of the kids. Then he grabbed a bottle of alcohol, and this will show you that Hollywood romance can turn into a love that goes so deep that it surpasses what's going on. His wife took the bottle from him, dumped it down the toilet, and said, go ahead and hit me if you have to, but you're not getting your bottle back. That's love. That's a big chance. He didn't hit her. But when he got into his next rage, he said this, I'm never hitting you again. And he dumped the steroids down the toilet and said, I'll die before I'll be roided up again. And that was the first time he started addressing his past. The first time he made a statement, I will no longer be controlled by other things. Now, yes, it was the current steroids, but it was also, I will never be angry like that again, or at least I will find help. Started to go back to church. You can't go to church when you work seven days a week. Said, still was putting on a bit of a face because he had sort of started to deal with it, but that anger's still there. It's still broken inside. There's still a past that's undealt with. Started doing counseling, and anybody who's been in counseling, a lot of it is finding out why you are the way you are, how you view the world. He said it was, it was a really strange experience for him because he started to see what I'm describing here. I'm giving it a little more artisticness with a metaphor. You start to see those little things 
and those big things coming together to create a whole new personality that God never intended him to be. His sins and the sins of others made him into someone he shouldn't be. He said his wife asked him one night in bed, he said, have you forgiven the guy who molested you? And he answered no. And that's not shocking. That's a process, right? But the reason why is the one that revealed the past was still in control. He said, because he did nothing wrong, I didn't say no. That is the standard victim mentality. That is the standard mentality of someone whose past is controlling their present. Unable to see that it was not truly in his control. He just desired to be loved and someone loved him in the wrong way. He still blamed himself. Now into his 30s. He started doing more and more counseling. He said this is what he realized. These are the distorted truths that he viewed life. Number one. He wished he had been brutally raped, then it wouldn't be his fault. See Satan's perversion. See him convincing an individual who thinks he's not good enough that he's responsible for things that he is not. The second one was he realized that although he never cheated on his wife, everything was about sex. He couldn't form a normal relationship without wondering if someone liked him because how do you like people? You have sex. He said he didn't hold normal relationships. He didn't have friends. But the third one was the oddest belief that he was a failure because he did not perform properly while being molested. Our past informs our present. It limits our future because it skews what we want to see. And Satan wants to remind us of those things. And if they haven't come under Jesus Christ, if they haven't gone through the forgiveness and the redemption process, they continually whisper in our ears. It's a lifelong process. It doesn't just stop because you become a Christian. It says we're a new creation in the Bible, but I think we, we forget the rest of the Bible. Paul says something in Romans 7, 19 that just grabs me. He says he does the things he doesn't want to do and doesn't do the things he wants to do. Which means even as a new creation, something in the sin nature in the past would dictate things and he'd do the wrong thing. He was trying to address it. And I know I'm taking a little liberty. It's not what it says. He's not saying, I am trying to address it. But I would guess that he too, his past would speak to him. Little nudges like, you know how many people you killed in the name of the God you now worship and you were wrong? How many people you killed who followed Jesus and now you follow him? I am sure Satan constantly whispered because what do he say? I am the worst sinner of them all. But when you run that through the blood of Jesus Christ, you recognize the worst sinner is also redeemed. I do transitional ministry because I want people to recognize that what was in the past will always speak to us. Our choice is whether God's going to speak to us through the past or Satan is. Whether we've been through good or bad, the past will inform us. If we had the greatest church in the world, we will be wanting the former church all the time and the world has already changed. If we had the worst church in the world, we'll be wanting to get away from that and run and we will act differently. I look out here and I'll guarantee you there's a couple of men out here who have lashed out in anger and wondered where did that come from? We talked about it last week, you know, you yell about the amount of peas on your plate, but it's really about the day at work. It's the same thing. You lash out about the amount of peas on your plate and it's really about a lifetime of unaddressed hurt or desires for happiness that are now gone because life changes. 
I do transitional ministry because I desire to see people go from the past controlling them to the past informing them. And God, through his redemption and through their own repentance, they become a new creation that desires what is right and true, not living in fear. Now you know why I do transitional pastoral. Now you know why it's so important to me because when the past informs you that much and controls you that much, you do things you don't want to do. If we want to be a powerful church for God, we must make sure the past is viewed through God's lens. Redemption, forgiveness, repentance. It's so important to me that we get this because I'm sick and tired of hearing leave the past in the past when those are the people that often are carrying it with them. Bring the past with you, but bring God with you too. It is so important to me that this is the message that gets out. This is a sermon that I normally preach about three quarters of the way through my time at the church. You will find that most of the sermons are new, but there's a few pocket sermons. But God told me to preach it today. And it came from something that came up a few weeks ago. We don't know Dave. You do now. That was me. That was me who hit his wife. That was me who tried to destroy his family. That was me who had his life ruined by other people and didn't deal with it. I still have to deal with it. But now I deal with it through God who brings me peace. There was a time even after I came back to Christ where I became so angry I got on my hands and knees and smashed my head into the floor. And the last thing I heard was a crack and I was out cold. Because I wasn't dealing with what was going on. Praise God, there's healing. But if you assume that suddenly because we're not the church we were six, eight months ago, everything's okay, it's not true. But God can use what we've been through to teach us, to grow us, to help us to learn to forgive and move on. But once we do that, to inform us of a great future. I have a great future. I get to be a pastor when I should be in a gutter addicted to drugs. You have a great future, but you've got to let God bring the past into focus, address it, forgive, and then we'll move forward. It is your choice. But if you truly want to forgive like God forgives, you don't forget. You forgive in spite of the fact that you know hurt has been done. I know it's a difficult sermon. I made it through this time. I've never done it twice in a row. The last time I did it, I was unable to finish. This time I made it, I don't know how. I stand before you, know who I am. And I bet you a couple of you out there are just like me. Let God heal you. Don't forget your past. Let God use it. And in the future, you'll bring the same message of hope that I brought you today. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, this is a, a difficult time. It's a very difficult time because truth is painful. But your truth is redeeming. God, I pray for everyone in here who has heard something that has tagged them. God, that they will seek the help they need. But most importantly, right now, they'll say, God, heal me. God, forgive me. God, help me to forgive. God, as we work together to put the past into your focus, help us to cry the tears we need to try, cry, laugh the laughs we need to laugh. Bring us through so that our foundations are patched up, 
The scars may still be there, but God, we are on a firm foundation built on the footings of a perfect God who knitted us, wove us together, and designed us for so much more than anger and hurt that the past brings us. Bring your healing. Amen.